Um, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in uh, John again tonight. We're going to look at some verses from chapter 13. We'll be studying 14 as well. Um, jumping right in, if you were here with us last time, um, you know that, uh, and if you've ever been here um, for any of my teachings in John, you know that I love John chapter 13. It is probably one of my favorite chapters to preach, um, and uh, one that I've uh, preached over and over and over again, and, and by now I should be pretty okay at it. Um, I love this chapter. I, I love all of John. I, I love teaching and preaching through it, but John 13 is just so awesome, so special, um, and I love teaching and preaching um, from it. Uh, but last time we spent um, our time talking about um, what Jesus uh, gives us in John 13. He talks about a new covenant and a new commandment that goes along with that new covenant. Just like the old covenant had ten commandments, the new covenant would also have a commandment, just one though. Um, it's not number 11 or it's not number 620, whatever. It is a new commandment that replaces and encompasses all of the old. A new covenant with a new commandment. Jesus introduces this new covenant, this new commandment, the night before he died in an upper room with his 12 closest disciples. Jesus sat down with his closest followers um, on this Thursday night of Passion Week to show them the full measure of his love, as what the text tells us um, in, in John 13. Uh, John 13 verse 1, it tells us that Jesus knew that his hour was near, that he would depart from the world very soon. Um, having loved his own who were with him, he loved them to the very end, and, and, and what that means isn't that his love was coming to an end or his movement was coming to an end, but he was going to show them the full extent or the full measure of his love. And of course, this new covenant and this new commandment both would be all about God's love, receiving it and reflecting it, experiencing it and sharing it. And again, John 13 opens up and tells us that Jesus loved his own to the very end. Again, not because his ministry was ending, but that his love was being fully and, and, and finally put on um, display in, in its most pure form. His love was going to be put on and shown to the fullest extent. The end, or the full extent of God's love, is about total sacrifice for and commitment to others. So that when it says there in John 13, 1, that Jesus had loved his own and was going to show them the full measure of his love, loved them to the, to the fullest of, uh, of God's love and, and revealed to them the very end, if there is an end, of God's love, he's talking about how he is about to show them what it means to say, for God so loved the world, and what it means for God to tell us that we also should love the world should love one another. God's love and, and love in general is about total sacrifice, about total commitment to others. No ifs, ands, buts about it, no excuses, about total sacrifice and total commitment. Now, John must have had special revelation and insight to the heart of Jesus this night as the text tells us that Jesus looked around the room. Can you imagine this? Jesus, the Son of God in flesh, sitting with 12 of his closest followers. He has been the most famous man in the room for all these years. He's been the most powerful man in the room for all these years. He has healed. He has miraculously saved. He has just recently uh, raised a man from the dead, right? I mean, we've read through John. Jesus has done incredible things, right? Water to wine was just the tip of the iceberg, right, to what he was going to be able to do. He raised a, son, a, a man's son back to full life. He healed um, a man's daughter. He healed um, the woman that it was you know with the issue of blood he has done so many amazing things and in John's gospel alone he's healed the blind man he raised Lazarus from the dead Jesus is all powerful right and everybody knows it and everyone is after him and wanting him to be the Messiah they've always been waiting for God to send but then Jesus all of a sudden signals a change in direction he exits the stage when they threw a parade for him and wanted to make him king he says no thanks 
He goes into the temple and debates with the religious leaders and tells them that God's about to do something they did not expect God to do. And then he goes dark. And we find him in this upper room with his disciples. And he's sitting there on this night. He looks around at those that were with him. And, and, and the scripture says that it began to dawn on Jesus just what was at stake. He was God, after all. He was God in flesh. He had all the power. He was from heaven. He was going back to heaven. And yet, here he was. And we can't understand this because we're, we're just, we're barely people, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we could never understand what it means to be God and man, to be God in flesh, right? And here Jesus is, here God in flesh is, sitting at a table with just flawed and infallible men. He's sitting at his table and he knows he is from heaven. He knows he's going back to heaven. And one day after being heralded as Messiah, now rejected and only only followed by a select few, and he sees his future. He knows what's about to happen. He knows the next 12 hours are about to be the worst 12 hours that any human being could ever experience. Not long after the meal would end, he would be betrayed. And over the next 12 hours, he would, he would suffer betrayal, lies, denials, rejection, pain, and eventually, and finally, death. The most brutal of all deaths, Roman crucifixion. Jesus looks over and there sits the devil himself. Judas seemed to be showing signs of descent at Lazarus' house a few days before, but recently he had given himself fully over to the devil's plot to put an end to Jesus. Jesus began processing all this, as you would, right? If you knew what was going to happen 12 hours from now and all this was going to happen 12 hours from now, I don't know what you would do, but I would figure out a way to get out of it, right? I mean, hey, we're sitting down, you know, 6.30. It would have been about the time they would have been eating dinner, right? And Jesus just showed them the new covenant. He just talked about what was about to happen, and now it's dawning on him. This is real, right? I mean, I'm about to be betrayed by this guy right here. They're all going to forsake me. Peter's going to deny me three times. I'm going to be rejected by all these men. I'm going to be put on trial, lied about. I'm going to be sentenced to death. They're going to flog me. They're going to put a crown of thorns on me. I'm going to be barely alive by the time the trial is over. I'm going to be drugged to a cross with a with a piece of lumber on my back. I'm going to be laid out on a hill. I'm going to be nailed to that cross in my palms and in my ankles. I'm going to be put up on the hill. And that's just the start of it. And then God is going to pour out his wrath on me that everybody else deserves. That everybody in hell experiencing the suffering that comes along with rejecting God, all of that suffering that, would, that we all deserve, those that go and those that don't go to hell, all of the suffering that humanity deserves, God's going to pour out on His Son. Jesus is sitting there at this table thinking, it's about to be real. I don't know about you, but if all this was in front of me and I had the power to get out of it, I mean, snap my fingers, I don't care who I hurt, right? I don't care who I disappoint. I'm taking care of number one. Wouldn't you? Jesus looks over and there sits the devil. He looks around the room and he begins to realize what's at stake. His life was at stake. It dawned on him that it, did, that it didn't have to go this way, right? I mean, nobody was making him do this. He had all the power in the room. He had all the power in the world. All he had to do was snap his fingers. He could change the course of his future. He could change history. But Jesus knew that none of this was a coincidence. None of this was contrary to God's will at all, but this was all a part of God's plan. 
Yes, Judas thought he was acting alone. The enemy thought he was acting alone. All of those that plotted against Jesus thought they were sinisterly enacting a foolproof plot to take down Jesus' ministry. But they all underestimated the sovereignty of God. Jesus knew that God was in charge of even this moment. His humanity could only sense and feel the pain and suffering about to come his way. But his divinity, totally God, totally man, his divinity could see past that. He could see the mission. He could see the purpose. But in this moment, the man, just like me and you, a real person, considered, do I really want to do this? Do I really have to do this? It dawned on him that Jesus had all the power in the room When it dawned on him that he had all the power, he leaned into his purpose. And rather than leveraging his power for himself, because why why wouldn't he do that, right? Wouldn't you? Rather, though, than leveraging his power for himself, he would lay it down for everybody else. And in that moment when he got up from the table and he took off his outer garment and put on a servant's towel, he modeled for them what he was about to do for everyone on the cross. In this moment, Jesus chose not to consider what was at stake for him, but what was at stake for us. In this moment, he considered, this is what my power can do? But if I don't do this for them, there's no pardon. So I can either leverage my power for me, or I can lay it down for our pardon. What does it do? What, what, is, what do you do? What do we do when it dawns on us that we have all the power? Jesus gave us an example. Jesus said in John 13, verse 15, I have shown you, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. As I have done for you, you should do for others. He broke down through the meal, the new covenant that would be based on his sacrifice, his blood, his body broken for us, poured out for us. This movement he was starting and the model we would follow follow going forward would be based on his sacrifice. And he gave us one single commandment. Our service would follow his example, leveraging our power, our influence, our fortune for the sake of others. And he says at the end of chapter 13 in verse 34 and 35, we've heard it so much, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So how do we love? As I have loved you. How am I loving you? I'm sacrificing for you. I'm laying down my my fortune, my priorities, my power for you. So how should we love one another? Just as Jesus has loved us. By this, he says, by this one thing, they will know that you are mine. See, we think we're recognized as Christians because of the songs that we sing, the places that we go, the clothes that we wear, the symbols that we associate ourselves with, the things that we say, but we are only recognized as gods when we do this one thing if we have love one for another. Just as Jesus considered what love required of him on that night, we must do the same in every situation. Man, that's hard, isn't it? But consider what he was going through this night. And he made the decision, I am always going to say, what does love require of me? And Jesus, with the power that he had, it required that he laid it down and leverage it for everybody else. And I don't know what kind of power, influence, fortune you have, but love requires that we do just like Jesus would do. And just like Jesus did. 
We know that love always requires some level of sacrifice. Different levels, of course, but it's always depending on what great thing God has given us for the purpose of helping others. What is the nature of love? For God so loved the world. What did He do? Because He loved the world. He gave, right? Because love gives. Love sacrifices. It's the nature of love to give, not take. It's the nature of love to lay down, not power up. Love requires some sort of sacrifice, and it required of Jesus the greatest of sacrifices. And it requires of us a great sacrifice, putting others above ourselves. Jesus had so much potential. Of course, he was, he is God. He could have used it for himself, but love required him to use it for others just like it does for us. Now tonight, we're moving on to yet another landmark chapter of the Bible, not just John. As Jesus continued his conversation with his disciples, now Jesus had just told them he was about to leave, about to depart from this world. He is preparing them for his departure, his death on a cross, but he also leaves them a word that has proven timeless and so essential. Now, whereas chapter 13 is, 13 is about the mission we're on, Chapter 14 is about the promises we have. Now, if I was writing this, I'm glad I'm not. If I was writing this, I would put the promises first and then the mission. But often, we never fully measure up to the mission because we never fully understand the promises. But there's a reason why the, promise, the mission came first. Before we get to that, though, I want to read some of these promises that we all know and love so dearly. John 14, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know the way. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I wonder if he knew just how big this moment was. I am the way. I think he said this as if they should have known this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you, have, you know him and you have seen him because I and the Father are one and the same. Now you may wonder, Again, why did Jesus not tell us these promises before he tells us our mission? Because these promises encourage us and maybe give us a little bit more motivation to go out and do what he just said to do. Uh, but well, the promises Jesus makes to us are about the life that is exclusively found in him. Everything that we've read so far, he says very clearly, no one comes to the Father except through me. All the Father has for us is only access through Jesus. That's pretty clear from this text, isn't it? If you believe in God, Jesus is the only way to know him and trust him fully. So all these promises exclusively found in Jesus, and he makes it clear, if we don't love one another, people will not know who he is. So why is it a big deal that the promises follow the mission? Because Jesus wants to make it so clear to us how urgent the mission is. Does that follow, do you follow that? He tells us before, if y'all don't love people, they won't know who you are and they won't know who I am. And oh, by the way, here's why it's so important that they know who I am. Because there's no life apart from me. There's no hope apart from me. There's no heaven apart from me. There's no God apart from me. Makes it a little bit more urgent that we love, doesn't it? 
I shared this with you last week, but 1 John 4.20 tells us that believers can't love without loving God, without loving, love God without loving others. It says that how can you love your brother who you can see and not love, how can you love God who you can't see and love your brother who you can? That's not possible. So what if non-believers won't ever know God's love until they know our love? I think that's a pretty logical conclusion to come to. I think that's why Jesus tells us very clearly before he gives us these promises, he gives us the mission and says it is such a necessity that we love one another. So that's why this isn't a cart before the horse scenario. Love is what carries the message of Jesus to everyone. Now, John 14, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is the tangible, personal presence and person of God. Like John has been telling us, Jesus is the only revelation of God. Now, this is a, you know, a point that is contended by other religions, and even some Christians want to you know, uh, be pluralistic and say, well, you know, we're just away. It's impossible to, under, to, to understand this any other way than that Jesus is the exclusive and only revelation of God. Jesus is connecting the dots. If you hope for a God who is good and loving and caring and saving, then you can look no further and you can look nowhere else than Jesus. He is the full and true and only God. We cannot experience God apart from Jesus. He is the expression, the definition, and the incarnation of the one and only God. The passage is bookended by this clear word from God. 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not a way, he is the way. Now, I love these promises that we're so familiar with in verses 2 and 3, but we need to talk about what they mean versus what we maybe have thought about them to mean. Verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare place, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So we have this promise that is so awesome, and of course it's a subject of translations, and everybody gets really up in arms about whether it says mansion or something else. But I want to talk about this, because I think we don't really focus on this enough. Most of us, we have been trained to read this text and we emphasize the mansion because who doesn't want a big house to live in, right? I want a, who was, doesn't want a mansion to live in, right? A mansion where we have all the nice toys and technology, everything you could ever want, and Jesus shows up and knocks at the door and says, you want some milk, right? And he goes back and he leaves us to ourselves. But I've learned to read this text a little differently. For years, I skipped over what I think is the most important part of the verse. Before we get to the mansion part, we hear this. In my Father's house. Now, if you want to be literal about mansion, that's fine, but I want to be literal about house, too. Is that fair? House doesn't mean heaven. House means house, doesn't it? So, in my father's house are many mansions. Now, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to get into li the linguistic part of this, but here's what I think this means. That the room God has for you, the place God has for you in the Father's house is so much bigger and so much better. And don't think size, just think better and ideal than any room, any place we ever could find ourselves on earth. That in the Father's house, there's a place for you. And compared to whatever we call home on this earth, it is a mansion. It is a luxurious paradise. But don't be so quick to cart yourself off in a little corner of heaven, I think Jesus is trying to say. Because we're all going to live in one house under one Father. 
See, our place in His house will appear and be as if it were a mansion here on earth. We won't be separated or segmented in our own suburbs in heaven. We will be together like kids in one big, happy, eternal family. That's hard to believe in a world where we don't want to do anything with anybody but those that we like, right? We want to be able to do our thing with the people that we like. We go to church with the people that we like and sing songs that we like. We don't want to be with those people or those people, right? We're different and we don't get along. But in the Father's house, there's just one of them. We're all going to have a place in the Father's house. The Bible talks about eternity through the lens of a father throwing a big party for his son. And the Bible always talks about the father having this big house that his son is going to have a big banquet in. And his son's getting married. The father has a son who has been uh, working on a bride for a while. He's been trying to, to, to get her to fall in love with him, and he's finally did it. And the father has thrown this big banquet for his son, uh, and, and they're going to have this big party. And the Bible talks about eternity through the lens of this scenario, this analogy. The father is having a big party for his son, and he's inviting all of creation to come and have a party in the father's house. Now, in the ancient world, when there was a big wedding for somebody famous, somebody significant, someone with a lot of prominence, um, everybody would be invited to, to, to the wedding. And in the ancient world, because of hospitality and because of the custom, um, everyone, who was invited would, everyone who was invited would be given a room as a guest of honor. So if you wanted to have a wedding, you had to have a big house. And if you were a famous person, a rich person, you had a big house. And you made sure everybody had a room in your house when you threw a party and invited them. See where this is going? The Father is throwing a big party, and it's going to last forever. It's for the bride and his son. The Gospels in Revelation talk about a great wedding feast, and the Father is throwing for his son and his bride. The wedding feast is pretty much the focal point in what creation is funneling towards, and it doesn't have an ending. Revelation 19 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is what it's all about. That God's thrown a big party, His Son has taken a bride, the bride is the church, and there's a room in His house for everybody that's invited. There's not going to be anybody showing up for the party saying, oh no, there's no room for you, you've got to go down the road and take one of the guest rooms. No, there's a room. Hey, we've got to build an extra room onto the place, we'll build an extra room onto the place, but don't worry, we've been preparing for this for a long, long time. There's plenty of room. There's room for you, and there's room for me. Matthew 22, here's the parable Jesus told so often. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Why wouldn't you go? These wouldn't. Again, he sent his servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. You don't want to miss this. There's even a room prepared for you and you're going to be able to stay there forever. But you're not going to really go to your room because you're going to spend so much time around this big table eating with your friends and your family and your God. Everything is ready, and we've been invited to make plans and priority to attend this wedding feast, to find our room in the Father's house. Jesus says in verse 4, Where I go, you know, and the way you know. Well, we don't know, Thomas says. We don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. And Jesus says, I am how to get there. If you can 
take that interpretation. I am the way. Jesus is the way to the feast. He is the way to eternal life. Now, Jesus often gave this very simple invitation to anybody that he met. Follow me. The Greek word follow literally means get on the path. The, the root word of follow is a pathway, a road. Jesus is the pathway. He is the way of life. If we are following Jesus, we are walking along the pathway that is Jesus. Our lives should reflect the pathway we are traveling. So when Jesus says he is the way, is he your way? Are you taking steps he would take? Are you walking like he would walk? While we wait, of course, for the wedding feast, for this midnight cry, as it's called, we live by the way of Jesus because the only way to the wedding feast is Jesus. If we're planning to attend this wedding and this feast, if we're planning to live in the Father's house, there's only one way to get there. See, this means that being a Jesus follower is not static. That Jesus followers don't stand still because what's the definition of to follow someone? It means to move, right? If I'm following you, I don't just stand still and say, well, I guess I'm with him. I can't see him anymore because he left me. I'm way behind in the dust, right? Followers are always moving forward toward the next goal for God. Listen to Jesus talk about the goals that we have set for us. Look at verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. It's a pretty big thing to say, isn't it? The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Hey, my, my time's done, but y'all are going to live for a lot longer than I am, and generations are going to come. Greater works are y'all going to do than I've even done. Whatever you ask in my name, that, the, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I mean, this sounds like this open sesame, right? But what is Jesus talking about? What are we moving towards? Every day, God has something great for us to do. Every day, God has something greater to do than the day before. Now, I want to define greater here because greater cannot refer to scope or size because what could be greater than Jesus' death and resurrection? Nothing's going to top that, right? Nothing's going to be bigger than that. Nothing's going to be better than that. So greater does not refer to size or scope, but it refers to depth and width and scale. By obedience to the great commandment and the great commission, we can accomplish great things in line to what Jesus did that was called great, which was love, sacrifice, serve for the honor of the Father, for the good of the people. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. We've, we've read that already, right? Love one another as God has loved you. The great commission, make disciples of all nations. As you are following, have others join you as you follow. They should follow. Our hearts desire that we can accomplish these things, these greater things for God. And if we go to God in prayer, as verse 13 and 14 tells us, we will have the help and opportunity to do these greater works. Again, more definition for greater Mark 10, Jesus says, but whoever among you would be great or wants to be great, you want to be great? If you want to be great, you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice for many. So in line with the greatness that Jesus has set before us, this example, we can do great things as well. 
I believe, based on what verse 13 and 14 tells us, if we prayed, God, give us something great to do for your glory and their good, I believe God would move heaven and earth to answer this prayer. Now, a lot of times we think great means, God, give me something big to do. Give me something, you know, that's significant that I'm going to get attention for. No, when we pray for God to do, give us something great, that means, hey, God, I want to do something that's going to honor you. I want to do something that's going to honor what Jesus said before me. I want to honor you like Jesus honored you. I want to love you like he loved you. I want to sacrifice for you like he sacrificed for you. I want to put their good before my good. I want to do something great. I want to be great for you. Because if I can, be, if I can do greater things, I want to do it. I believe wholeheartedly if we prayed, God, give us something great to do with humility and with selflessness, God would move heaven and earth to show you what great thing there is for you to do every day. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. What is his commandment? To love, to do greater works, to do what is for the glory of God and for the good of others. That is the only commandment we have in this text. To love one another. If we love the Father, we will do that same thing. And he says, I will pray. I will pray the Father. He will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. God's commandment for us is that we would be greater. To seize each day. Follow the way. Now, how do we follow Jesus? How do we do, the, do life the way Jesus did life? Study and know and obey the truth. His truth gives us life. It sets us free from death and bondage. Jesus said if we have this goal to be greater, if we set out to follow his way, he will give us some help. Not just some help, but the help. The helper, as it's, it's called. Now we'll dive deeper into what the helper, the Holy Spirit, is all about. But in essence, here's what we learn. The basic idea of God's Spirit with us is... God's Spirit dwells with us and within us to work greatness through us. God's Spirit dwells with us and within us to work greatness through us. Again, what is greatness? Reflecting and modeling the love that God has given and shown to us. Again, don't think supernatural. Think relational. Think something that is achievable every single day with the people you work around, the people that you walk past, the people that you love, the people that you don't love. Just as God has comforted us and changed us, God wants to work through us. The, the Greek word behind helper is the word paraclete, which means helper or comforter or counselor. Every one of us has been comforted by God before, haven't we? Every one of us has been changed by God or God has changed something in us around us for our better, for our good, right? God wants to work through us to share this comfort and share this change, to share this love with everybody else. What comfort has God given you that you can share with somebody else? This is how easy this is. What comfort has God given you that when you look around the room tomorrow at work, when you look around the, 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 the scene in your life, somebody that's facing something like you faced before, but you know what? You've been given comfort by God. You know what it's like to be there, but you know what it's like to be brought out of there. What comfort has God given you that you can share with somebody else? It may be a simple, listen, I love you, I'm praying for you, God has been there for me, I know he'll be there for you, and I want to be there for you with, alongside him. 
What comfort has God shared with you and given you that you can easily share with somebody else? Hey, that's an easy act of loving someone. And that might not seem like a great thing to some people, but that is the greatest thing you can do for somebody. As God has comforted you, how can you comfort somebody else? What change has God brought about in you that someone else may want and need? I don't mean walk up to somebody and say, listen, you better change because you know, your life's wrong and mine's right. I mean, what change has God brought about miraculously in you that you see somebody else hurting and wanting and needing and they're open to help, they're open for, for advice, and God has helped you. He's changed your life. And somebody else is saying, I wish I knew how to get that myself. What change has God brought to you that you could bring to somebody else or you could show somebody else they can find in God? As you observe them facing the same things that you face, how easy is this to do, right? But it's so intimidating, isn't it? See, so many Christians say, I want God to use me, I want God to use me, but we want God to do something that's going to be so spectacular. But that's not how God is glorified. God is glorified when love makes a difference. And every one of you has the potential to love somebody like God has loved you. And as he's comforted you and changed you, you can extend that comfort and change to somebody else. Listen, there are people around us every day, they are begging for somebody to love them. They are begging for somebody to reach out to them. They are begging for somebody to say, I know where there's comfort, I know where there's help. See, here's why this is so important. While following Jesus may be a one-on-one thing, there's a lot of more people on the road than just us every day, isn't there? I mean, we pass a lot of people on the highway, don't we? Sometimes we pass them and we get angry because they're going slow. Sometimes they pass us and we wonder what's wrong with them. We're on a highway that's not just us and God, right? As we walk on the way, as we walk down this path, the Jesus way, we interact with a lot of people that are not following Jesus. But what if we could say to them, hey, as I'm following God, you should follow him too. As I'm following him, I want to invite you to take this same path. The parable of the wedding feast, Luke finishes the story like this. The king says, go out quickly to the streets and lane to the city. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Go out on the highway tomorrow as you're living your life and observe there's a lot of hurting people out there. Bring them in. Reach out to them. Love them. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done. And this is what we always say, isn't it? Well, I've done that. Nobody came. I tried, nobody listened. I tried, nobody wants it. Listen, hey, we've all said that before, right? And I'm not saying it wasn't sincere. We tried, but the servant said, Master, I've done that. And the master said, there's still room. It's another day. Greater things can you do today than you did yesterday. There's still room in my house. I've spent every piece of gold I've got to build onto this house. And you're going to let there be room left in it? Come on. He says... Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. He's not talking about this house. He's talking about the house. The Father's house where there's a place for you. Everybody you pass on the road tomorrow, on the pathway tomorrow, there's a place for them. You know what is in, is in between them and that house? Your love. Your love. And I've heard people say it would take a mighty move of God to change them. What's verse 12 say? Greater things will you do than I've done. He's not talking about raising the dead. 
He's talking about loving somebody and changing their life like God has loved us and changed our life. God wants to help us so that we can help others. He wants to help us be great and do great things. The greatest thing you can do is love somebody and serve them. God wants to help us be greater. Help us love God and love others to help us bring glory and do good. Who knows what good might be accomplished? Who knows what undeniable impact might be left on somebody's world? Who knows? Who might find a room in the Father's house if you love them like the Father has loved you? Who knows? You know who knows? You do. Because you got a place in the house because somebody loved you. Because God so loved the world. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. Sometimes we don't really know how much you love us. We can't comprehend it, God, but we love you. Tonight we've been reminded just how awesome your love is. And it's so great and it's so wonderful. And maybe we underestimate just how much love it took to win us over. God, I'm thankful that you've made a place for me in your house. I'm thankful that compared to what I've got here, it's a mansion. Lord, I can't wait to spend eternity around that dinner table with you and everybody in this house and everybody else that I know that loves you. But Lord, there's a lot of people out there that don't know you yet. And I've went and tried, God. I really have. I love, I've loved people and tried to help people and they don't want to listen. And you tell me I need to go back because I want my house full. Father, I pray with the most sincerity and humility that I can pray. Father, we want you to do great things through us, and we understand what greatness means. Greatness means loving people like you've loved us and changing and comforting hearts like you've changed and comforted us. We want you to do greater things in our hearts and in our lives and through our lives this week than you've ever done before. We want you to do greater things through us than you've ever done before, and we believe that as you have loved us, we, by loving others, can see this greatness accomplished. Father, equip us, enable us, and give us the courage to love, to love one another like you have loved us. Who knows? We just might change somebody's world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.